Chapter Fifteen of Raiding with Morgan by Byron Dunn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Ohoni, Ohoni, Ohoni. Monday, Calhoun left for Detroit. Doctor Warrington was on the train, but they met as strangers. When he reached the city and went to register at the Russell House, a gentleman was carelessly leaning against the desk, talking with the clerk. He did not appear to notice Calhoun, but he had caught the word C-H-I-C, period, after his name. After a few moments, the gentleman approached Calhoun and said, Pardon me, but is this not Mr. Harrison of Kentucky? My name is Harrison, answered Calhoun, but if you would examine the register, you would see I am from Chicago. Ah, yes, I understand, and he gave the secret sign of the order. Come, he continued, and let me introduce you to some friends. He led the way to a room where there were several gentlemen seated smoking and talking, among them Dr. Warrington, who gave him a warm greeting. I have been telling them about you, said Warrington, and they all are anxious to meet you. The doctor then introduced Calhoun to each member of the party. There was Reitman of New York, Bowman of Indiana, Hartman of Missouri, Bullock of Kentucky, and others. "'You don't tell me you are the son of my old friend Judge Pennington of Danville?' asked Mr. Bullock, as he shook Calhoun warmly by the hand. "'The very same,' answered Calhoun. "'Gentlemen, we have no fears of Lieutenant Pennington,' exclaimed Mr. Bullock, addressing those present. "'I will vouch for him with my life. Let's see, your name is now?' Harrison for the present, answered Calhoun with a smile. The party had no trouble in getting across the river, and that night there was a meeting in Windsor which boded ill for the federal government. The supreme commander of the order was a gentleman in the full vigor of manhood. He was polished in his manner, rather reserved, but every action showed that he was accustomed to command. Behind it all, Calhoun thought he detected the signs of an inordinate ambition, an ambition which would stop for nothing. "'Isn't he grand?' whispered Dr. Warrington to Calhoun, a fit representative to wear the mantle of your great namesake. "'Better say the mantle of Aaron Burr,' thought Calhoun, but he wisely did not give expression to his thought. The object of Calhoun's coming was fully explained, and it was decided by a unanimous vote that he should receive the fourth degree, and thus be entitled to all the information which he wished. The degree was duly conferred on him. Calhoun was now certain he was among a band of conspirators who would stop at nothing to achieve their ends. "'Is this the highest of the degrees?' asked Calhoun, when he was through. The party exchanged meaning glances, and then the supreme commander said, "'There is one more degree, but it is given only to the highest officers in the order,' and would not be of the least advantage to you. Calhoun was certain there was something which those present did not wish him to know, some object which they wished to keep secret. The number of members in the order was now given to Calhoun. The figures astonished him. In Iowa, there were 20,000 members. In Missouri, 50,000. In Illinois, 120,000. In Indiana, 100,000. In Ohio, 80,000. Throughout the East, the order was not so numerous. 
This seemed strange to Calhoun, for he thought that New York especially would be fertile ground for it. How many of these men are armed? asked Calhoun. The answer was, in Missouri, nearly all. In Illinois, 50,000. In Indiana, 40,000. In Ohio, the same. In Kentucky, nearly all. Gentlemen, exclaimed Calhoun, with considerable warmth, if these figures are correct, why have you not arisen before this and hurled the Lincoln government from power? Pardon me, but it looks like timidity. The North is denuded of men. Those loyal to Lincoln are in the army. This is what I have insisted on, cried Mr. Bowman of Indiana, jumping to his feet in his excitement. I say strike, strike now. We of Indiana are ready. Liberate the Confederate prisoners in northern prison pens. We have arms for them. If necessary, give every northern city over to the flames. Brother Bowman forgets, answered the Supreme Commander, that our forces are scattered, that if we attempted to concentrate, the government will take alarm and crush us. At the present, we have to work in secret. But what if Indiana and Ohio should be invaded? asked Calhoun. That would be different, was the answer. What if you should be successful in your plans? asked Calhoun. Let the South go free. We firmly believe in the doctrine of states' rights, was the answer. Would your states cast their lot with the South? asked Calhoun eagerly. Again, there were meaning glances among the leaders. It is yet too early to answer that question, slowly replied the Supreme Commander, or even to discuss it. The overthrow of the present abolition government and the independence of the South is now our object. But had the leaders a further object? Calhoun resolved to find out, and he did. The conference at Windsor was over. It was resolved that the order should everywhere be strengthened, and that it should strike at the first favorable opportunity. The opportunity would come at once should the North be invaded. From Detroit, Calhoun went to Columbus, Ohio, from there to Dayton, the home of a Landingham. He found that the gentleman was the idol of that section. They wanted him to come home. They swore they would defend him with their lives. The whole country reeked with disloyalty to the federal government. Calhoun availed himself of the opportunity of talking with all classes of citizens. He especially tried to get at the feelings of the humbler members of the Knights of the Golden Circle, why they joined the order, and what they proposed doing. All the information he gleaned, he treasured up. From Dayton, Calhoun proceeded to Indianapolis, where he was to meet Mr. Bowman. He found Indiana much better organized than any of the other states. Bowman was enthusiastic, and he seemed to hate the Lincoln government with his whole soul. He would stop at nothing to achieve his ends. But the especial object of his hatred was Governor Morton. "'I want to live long enough,' he said, "'to see that tyrant hang for tramping on the constitution of the state.'" Calhoun found that the Knights stood in great dread of Morton. They declared he had a way of finding out every secret of the order. If he had not been thoroughly guarded, his life would not have been worth a farthing. Calhoun was taken into the country, where he witnessed the drilling of two or three companies of the Knights. These meetings always took place at night, in some secret place, and sentinels were posted to guard against surprise. Calhoun talked with many members to get their ideas and to find out what they wished to accomplish. 
"'What do you think?' asked Bowman of Calhoun, after they had returned to Indianapolis. "'I have forty thousand of those fellows.' "'Will they fight?' asked Calhoun. "'Fight? Of course they will fight,' was the answer. "'Let Morgan get into the state, and you will see.' At Indianapolis, Calhoun met with a wealthy farmer named Jones, who lived near Corydon. He had no words too severe to say of Lincoln, and boasted of the number of knights in his part of the state. "'We are going to sweep the black abolitionists from the earth,' he exclaimed boastingly, "'and hang old Abe and Morton, too.' "'What would you do if Morgan came?' asked Calhoun. "'Do? I would throw my hat in the air and yell until I was hoarse,' was the answer. "'What if Morgan should want some of your horses?' asked Calhoun. Mr. Jones's countenance fell. At length he mumbled, "'Of course he would pay me for them.' "'Of course,' replied Calhoun, in a tone which the old gentleman did not quite understand. Just before Calhoun was ready to leave Indianapolis, Bowman told him Morton was to hold a reception and asked him if he would not like to attend and see the great war governor. Nothing would suit Calhoun better. He had a desire to see the man of whom he had heard so much, a man who had the majority of his legislature against him, yet held the state as in the hollow of his hand, a man who borrowed hundreds of thousands of dollars in his own name, that the soldiers of his state might be thoroughly equipped. He had overcome every difficulty and held his state firmly for the Union. Now, with thousands of the citizens of the state secretly plotting against him, he moved serenely along the path he had marked out. Urged to adopt the most severe measures, he knew when and when not to make an arrest. He avoided angering his enemies, except when the public safety demanded it. His very name caused every member of the Knights of the Golden Circle to tremble. Little did Calhoun think that when he promised to attend the governor's reception that Morton's detectives were already looking for him. The renewed activity of the Knights had aroused the governor's suspicions, and he was not long in finding out the cause. To locate and arrest the southern officer who was causing the ferment was his order to his detectives. A large crowd attended the reception, and in such a gathering Calhoun felt in no danger. He saw in Morton a thick-set heavy man with a massive head and brain. He looked every inch the intellectual giant that he was. The grandest figure, thought Calhoun, that I have seen in the north. He is a man to beware of. No wonder the knights stand in fear of him. When Calhoun, passing along in the throng, took the governor's hand, Morton bent his piercing look upon him, and the question came as if shot out of his mouth. Where are you from, young man? The suddenness of the question threw Calhoun off his guard, and almost involuntarily he answered, From Kentucky. From Kentucky, huh? And how goes it down there? Calhoun was himself again. Of course, he answered, we are greatly divided in that state, but all the powers of Jeff Davis cannot tear it from the Union. Good, pass on, and the governor turned to the next in line. But a feeling as of impending danger took possession of Calhoun. Why that question to him? He had heard it asked of no other. Could it be he was suspected? Forcing his way through the throng, he got out of the building as soon as possible. It was well that he did so, for hardly had the governor let go Calhoun's hand 
when he motioned to General Carrington and whispered to him, Arrest that young man. Do it as quietly as possible, but see he does not get away. He is the southern officer we have been looking for, I am sure. I have a full description of him. General Carrington, in turn, whispered to a couple of quiet-looking men, dressed in citizens' clothes, who stood near the governor. They nodded and started after Calhoun, who was now nearly lost to view in the crowd. Once out of the building, Calhoun found that hundreds of spectators had gathered out of curiosity. They were hurrahing for Lincoln and Morton, and shouting for the Union, and some were singing, We'll hang Jeff Davis from a sour apple tree. Rapidly pushing his way through this mob, he reached the outer edge of the circle. Here groups of men were standing, but they were not hurrahing. Instead, their looks were dark and surly, and it was plain they were not enjoying the proceedings. Just as Calhoun reached these groups, a heavy hand was laid on his shoulder, and a stern, low voice said, "'You are our prisoner. Better come quietly and make no disturbance.' And in a trice, Calhoun felt each of his arms grasped by strong hands. He was powerless in the iron grip by which he was held. If help there was, it must come from the outside. Ohoni, Ohoni, Ohoni. The despairing cry cleft the night air like a knife. It fell on the astonished ears of hundreds who did not understand it. But to those groups of silent, sullen-browed men, it came as the call of a trumpet, summoning them to duty. Ohoni, Ohoni, they answered, and before the surprised officers could draw a weapon, could raise a hand to defend themselves, they were beaten down, and their prisoner snatched from them. The alarm was raised, and a company of soldiers came on the run, with fixed bayonets, scattering the crowd right and left. But when they reached the spot, they found only a couple of half-dazed and bleeding officers. They could only say they had been set upon, knocked down, and their prisoner taken from them. By whom they did not know, for it was dark, and the crowd had dispersed. When the onset came, Calhoun felt himself grasped by the arm, and a voice whispered, Follow me, quick. Into the darkness Calhoun dashed, following his guide. In the shadow of buildings, through dark alleys, they ran. At last they came to a part of the city where only a lamp gleamed here and there. They stopped running, both exhausted, their breath coming in quick gasps. We are safe now, said the guide, but it was a close shave for you. What did they arrest you for? To hang me, answered Calhoun, with a shudder. I am a Confederate officer. I thought you must be some big gun, or old Morton wouldn't have tried to arrest you in that crowd. But don't worry, you are all right now. His guide, whose name proved to be Randall, soon came to a house, which he said was his home, and he exclaimed, None of Abe Lincoln's minions will ever find you here. I have sheltered more than one escaped Confederate prisoner from that infernal pen out there called Camp Morton. It should be called Camp Hades. Calhoun was ushered into the house and shown a room. Sleep soundly and without fear, said Mr. Randall. Calhoun took his advice, but before he went to sleep, he did not forget to return thanks for his escape and he also had a great deal more respect for the Knights of the Golden Circle than he had had before. The next morning, 
The papers came out with a full description of Calhoun, telling of his escape and saying he was a famous spy. The article ended with the announcement that so important did the government consider his person that a reward of $1,000 would be paid for his recapture. Calhoun now knew that his work was done in the North. The only thing that remained for him was to get out of it as secretly as possible. Two days afterwards, he was conveyed out of the city, concealed in a farmer's wagon. He was passed on from the hands of one true knight to another, and at the end of three days, he found himself on the banks of the Ohio, a few miles above Madison. In the darkness of the night, he was rowed over, and his feet once more pressed the soil of his native state. In his ecstasy, he felt like kissing the ground, for was it not the soil of Kentucky? At the house of a true Southerner, he found refuge. His measure was taken into Carlton, where a tailor made him a fine uniform. Purchasing a horse of the gentleman with whom he had stayed, he bade him good-bye and sprang into the saddle. The sun had just set, and the whole west glowed with the beauty which we ascribed to the golden city. In the midst of the gold hung the new moon like a silver bow. See, see, cried Calhoun, the new moon. I saw it over my right shoulder. It means good luck. And while the happy omen still gleamed in the west, he galloped away. End of chapter 15